Today's episode is brought to you by Banzoogle, where you can build a stunning DJ website in minutes. With a few simple clicks, you can enhance your online presence with a great website behind your own .com domain for your mixes, music, and more. Visit bandzoogle.com and use the coupon code PASSION to receive 15% off your new website. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Crane. You're listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast. Hope you enjoy my interview. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast. I'm your host, David Michael. Now, I'm here by myself today, at least just for this little intro part, but today we are going to be presenting our exclusive interview with Crane, and that interview is presented by myself and, of course, Tony DeSero, who uh, did an awesome job at squaring this interview up for us, so shout out to my buddy, Tony. Thank you so much, and, you know, Tony and I had a good time interviewing Crane, as you'll hear in this interview, he's very interesting to talk to. He really cares about interacting with his audience and how he presents himself as an artist. He's very articulate, very thoughtful about how he shares his music with his audience, his approach to a live show, and how he compiles an album. This past October, he came out with his full-length album titled Fallout. He's an artist on the Dim Mock label, that's Steve Aoki's label, so he's kind of a big deal. We were super excited to be able to speak with somebody who's doing big things and touring as a headlining artist, and like we always do, we kind of let the interview go wherever the interviewee wanted to take it, and we had a great time talking about it. We asked him to describe his live setup and tell us about his musical history and his work history and that kind of transition going to full-time musician. We ask him what he aims for his audience to feel when he's playing a live show. Tony asks him how he feels about becoming a DJ after entering the music scene through production. And we ask him how much those live shows influence the music that he makes now. And Crane, you know, just sort of gives us an idea of all the things that are really important to him when it comes to this music, the emotions and the feelings that he wants his audience to feel. It was a really great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. And we're going to get right into that interview shortly. Real quick, in the interest of housekeeping, just wanted to remind you guys that next week's episode is titled DJ Etiquette, and Trip Turlington has kind of prepared that show for us and put down some general you know, DJ booth etiquette stuff that we should all be considering. These are the kind of things that we talk about a lot on the show, but we've never dedicated a whole show to it. Uh, we really encourage you guys to check that out and uh, make sure that uh, we're all, of course, being harmonious behind the DJ booth, especially when we have to share it with other people. Also coming up is my review of the Pioneer XDJ RX2 that will be coming to YouTube here in the next week or two. Speaking of YouTube, 
Our interview today with Crane is being presented on YouTube as well. We did put together a YouTube version of this. So hit us up on our YouTube channel or just go to the show notes of this page at passionatedj.com forward slash crane. That's crane with a K, K R A N E. And you'll be able to watch the embedded video of this interview right there in the show notes. Another thing that we've got coming here in the next week or so is our first episode of After Party, and that is the exclusive bonus episode of the Passionate DJ Podcast, which is only going to be available to supporters of the podcast on Patreon. Of course, for those of you who are not familiar with Patreon, this is a way for you to pledge any amount that you wish every month to support the Passionate DJ Podcast, which is super awesome, and thank you to you guys who have already signed up to be a patron on Patreon for Passionate DJ. Uh, It's super awesome to see that you guys are down for the cause. And uh, in order to thank you guys for that, we are putting together an exclusive bonus episode of the Passionate DJ podcast every month. It's called After Party, and that's available only to supporters on Patreon. So definitely go and check that out if you want to be a supporter and you want to get an extra hour or more of the podcast every month. And for those of you who do, you are awesome. Thank you so much. All right, so let's get on to the interview with Crane. This is going to be the first half, then we're going to break just for a moment in the middle and then finish up in the second half of the show. So without further ado, I present our interview with Crane. I guess the first place I want to start is how do you kind of refer to yourself? Um, are you a DJ, performer, producer, musician? You know, who is Crane? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> okay. I mean, um, you know, I, I came into this through um, through production, I guess. Okay. Well, I back up even farther through music. So originally a musician, I'd say. And, uh, you know, grew up playing music. Um, playing instruments and little jazz groups and just kind of messing around. And then, um, you know, I wound up finding production probably like three or four years ago um, and actually was completely oblivious to the whole like producer as artist scene or like DJ and stuff like that. So, yeah, I was just kind of making beats and stuff like that. Um, Then discovered the DJ thing. I remember when I got a booking request um, that just came in through like, you know, someone finding me on SoundCloud. And actually, um, I think that's where I started. So you weren't even pursuing gigs at the time. I was also a DJ as well. But it took a little while because I didn't really realize what was going on. I was just putting like hip hop beats and stuff like that online. So I didn't really think too much about it. But now I consider myself a producer, um, a DJ, musician. Yeah. What about the name Crane? Where did that come from? Oh, that's just my last name. Okay. <laughs> <There> was, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I mean, like, again, like, I didn't start this thing thinking about, like, becoming an artist or having a career in this. And um, so I just picked that name just because it was my last name. And, okay. Um, the, the only reason yeah. I asked is because I knew I, it changed slightly, right? Like, it used to well, be. Yeah, there was no A in it because um, that username on SoundCloud was taken. Okay. And you used to not be able to double up. So uh, I didn't, you know, again, this is my whole journey is kind of like I didn't really plan this. Um, so then 
when I started taking it more seriously and, you know, people started referring to me, I realized no one knew how to fucking say my name. And I don't blame them. There was like, I look, you know, there's this like letters stuck together that don't really make a whole lot of sense. So I didn't like go out and show people the name and be like, how would you say this? So when I finally realized what was going on, I knew I had to put the A back in. It took a little while because I kind of procrastinated on it. But yeah, eventually put it back in. <laughs> so people were calling you Kern and Corn and stuff like oh, that. Oh my God, all sorts of stuff. And I felt <laughs> bad. People would like argue on Reddit about it i gotta say it and just felt guilty i was like you know this is totally my fault guys this is we're gonna fix this so yeah well we kind of touched on the the different facets of crane as a a performer and a musician i wonder if um you could kind of describe what you use like what's your live rig what do you perform on it's just djing right now i mean again like it's i got into this kind of late um when i started out it was ableton sets just because i had no idea how to dj no access to cdjs or anything like that had a buddy who had an apc which um is a hardware controller for ableton i really quickly in a matter of a couple weeks figured out how to set up a really crude dj set in ableton it was terrible my first show was awful and um yeah i stuck with ableton probably for like a year until things started getting pretty serious and then um switched over to uh to cdjs which just makes okay. so much more sense for touring yeah sure I mean, if you're just DJing, like apcs and all that stuff makes sense if you're you know triggering loops or doing stuff like that's kind of a hybrid live not live setup but for me it, it just didn't make any sense to keep okay. doing ableton and worrying about my laptop crashing and stuff <laughs> so now it's just cdjs okay so I, I apologize. We kind of jumped right into the interview. I'm David. This is my co-host, oh. Tony. <laughs> What's up, man? Hey, guys. I'm hey. Zach. Um, he's got some... Uh, is it okay if we call you Zach? Yeah. On the show. Okay, cool. Uh, Tony's got some questions for you as well, so he'll be jumping in here. Do you want to throw one at him here? Yeah. Um, so y- you said you were producing first and then became a DJ. Um, uh-huh. What is your opinion on, on the DJ aspect of it? How do you how do you feel about the DJ as opposed to it's, the producer? You know, it's weird. Um, that's a that's a great question, by the way. Um, you know, I have a lot of kind of ambivalent feelings about it because, again, coming from a musician's background, it was um, it was a little bit weird at first. Um, getting used to the idea that what I was doing on stage was not the same thing as what I was doing in the studio. And I think, you know, I came from playing guitar and bass and that's, you know, you get used to like what you're doing on stage is what you're doing when you're songwriting and recording and all that stuff. And so there's no gap really. Um, so with producing and DJing, there was a gap and you know, my, as a producer, my craft was pretty far along and then as a DJ it was pretty far behind. So it, you know, I was kind of insecure about it for a little while until I got used to it until I, really understood what it was all about how to do it well um how to also make it my music and my set and then you know how to appreciate that this isn't the same thing as a live concert this isn't like going and seeing a jazz trail you know this is about the environment it's about the show it's about interacting with the crowd and it's it's about giving them the opportunity to hear your music the way it was meant to be heard as well um which are all things that are not necessarily the same thing that you know a musician does when they get on stage um mm-hmm. depending on the type of music so yeah i'm still sort of sorting it out and also thinking ahead to you know how to pull it away a little bit from djing sometimes into more of a live act but you know until then um i've gotten pretty comfortable with being a dj with djing and you know putting on a really great dj show which you know again that's what people are coming out for for the most part 
I like that answer of um, you're you're trying to have the crowd hear it the way it's meant to be heard, and like I I like that your focus is on the the listener experience. That's yeah, that's a great answer. You know when we're when I'm and I know a lot of producers, you know, for some of the songs that we're making, they're meant to be a part of a set, you know, as opposed to a band that gets up there, you play the song, whole fades out little bit of silence the next song you know with what we're doing it's it's meant to fit into a set and there's certain songs and certain things you do to like create breaks and stuff like that but um you know hearing your music in a dj set hearing drops switched out and hearing it edited and looped in cool ways you know that's that's a large part of what a lot of this music is being written for so you know that is kind of where you're supposed to hear it Having said that, um, how do you actually prepare for a set? When I normally go into a set, I've been a DJ for a little over 25 years. Um, and when I go to play a set, it's, I, I throw, you know, depending on the set time, I throw 30, 40 songs in the, in the playlist. And, you know, I kind of freestyle and go with the crowd. Um, how, how do you prepare for a set? Well, so again, it sort of depends on the kind of show. Um, you know, there's, I'd say there's more kind of freestyle in two situations. One, when I'm support or when it's a really soft ticket night. It's not like I'm the headliner and people are really coming out there for my music because then I am more responding to the crowd and I, I can't anticipate what they're going to be like and what they're going to be into now for like this last tour, you know, this is the first headline tour I've been doing, right? So you know, I know pretty much for certain that the majority of people are coming out for my music. And while the flow of the set might change, you know, I know of my songs, the ones that are in the set that I want to get through, and I know which ones kind of fit together. So there's some of that improv taken away. But, you know, something we've been doing on the um, on the tour to kind of bring some of that back is bringing the artists up at the end, doing some back to back and, you know, playing around a little bit. Um, some of the sets, you know, they haven't kicked us off the stage and they wound up being like two hour sets for the last hour is just back to back. Um, and so those are really fun opportunities after I've kind of, you know, presented my case to the audience and, you know, really the best that I can put together, some of which was just put together ahead of time. Um, to just play around and experiment. So it's really a mix and it depends on the situation. What about your more general musical history? You mentioned jazz a minute ago, and I, I feel like I read somewhere that you had a, a history with jazz music. Um, does that yeah. play a role in your music now? And, and where where do you come from in that respect? Well, I mean, like, not a serious jazz history. You know, I didn't go to uh, music school or anything like that. I just grew up playing it and taking lessons and playing with friends and then in college playing in some ensembles. Um, but I'd say less from a technical perspective and more just for what I gravitate towards aesthetically, you know, um, getting into jazz, I think starts to open you up to a lot of Latin music, a lot of world music, a lot of, you know, Persian music, a lot of modern classical music and things like that. So I'd say it most significantly influences me when I'm looking for harmonies and melodies and sound design and reaching outside of the genre and outside of what everyone's doing to bring in, you know, some other aesthetics. And I think that's, I think that's important. That's cool because the, you know, I think of jazz as being like a, a a polar opposite of the kind of music that we tend to talk about in these conversations as far as structurally and stuff. Because mm-hmm. if we're talking, say, something like, uh, we'll just call it dance music in general, um, there has to be kind of a repetitive element to it for it to be, for it to do what it does, right? And 
yeah. jazz is is very improvisational so does that kind of does that influence you more as a dj or as a producer does that make as sense as a producer as okay. a producer certainly i mean like getting on stage playing jazz is just a completely different mindset um so you know maybe eventually as a performer if i can get to a point where i can really invest in a live show and maybe there are some improvisational aspects but you know for the most part it's it's a very yeah it's a very different approach to like stagecraft and performing yeah um between you know being in a jazz group or a band for that matter and djing so it's yeah squarely in the production We're going to get right back to that interview with Crane here in just a moment. But before we do, I need to take a moment to tell you about BandZoogle. Now, they specialize in websites built for musicians by musicians, which is why we're happy to have them as a sponsor on this episode of the Passionate DJ Podcast, because they will help you put together an impressively good DJ website in just minutes. Now, their specialized point-and-click interface helps you do all the things that you need to do as a DJ or producer, such as sell music and merch, build your email list, integrate with your social media accounts, and much, much more. Now, here's how easy it is. Step one, you just choose a mobile-friendly theme. Step two, you make it unique with just a few simple clicks. And in step three, you add your custom content. Step four, you connect your services. This is where you can do things like add a Bandcamp player, an Instagram gallery, a Twitter feed, and so on. And then in step five, you can publish it to the world. Now, their system is super easy to use, but if you do have any trouble, their support team is online seven days a week, ready to help via email or online chat. Now, here's what you do. Visit the show notes page for this episode or visit bandzoogle.com. That's B-A-N-D-Z-O-O-G-L-E.com to get an exclusive 15% off deal on your great new DJ website. And just a reminder, later this week, our first ever episode of After Party will go live, and it will feature an extended clip and conversation from this interview with Crane. So you're you're a full-time musician now, but um, what did you do before, and how did you get here? Um, yeah, so I went to college for industrial design, just like kind of describe it like architecture stuff. Okay. Um, I graduated, and you know, over the course of some years, really um, developed a career as a designer and a consultant um, in the Bay Area. And, uh, again, like I had no dreams of doing music. I mean, I've always been into music. I've always listened to it and been a fan. I didn't really listen to electronic music. And then I started, I remember my brother showed me SoundCloud and what was going on. I started listening to kind of what was going on in the, um, you know, hip hop beats and trap music and stuff like that, especially coming out of LA. 
And so um, I had a buddy that, you know, produced a little bit. I just got the software and was just messing around with it. And I was just making beats just totally for fun. Again, I had no idea. I'd never been to a show, never been to a festival of this kind of music. You know, when I went out and saw live music, it was like I'd go see a jazz group or I'd you know, go to the Bluegrass Festival in Golden Gate Park or whatever. Um, I wasn't a fan per se yet. And then I just started getting into it and producing and, um, you know, putting this stuff online. And it was a fun project, you know, hitting up blogs, kind of growing it, but still like not trying to make a career of it at all. I just, I'm like a project person. If I'm going to do something, I want to kind of like, I want to go for it. Right. So, uh, yeah, it just grew and then booking started coming in and, you know, everything kind of grew incrementally as well as my education about like, you know, what was this whole scene about? So if you, I know it's a, a kind of a different type of design, but since you have that kind of aesthetic mindset, does that mean that you do your own artwork and logos and, and that kind of design stuff? Yeah, I do all the, you cut out for a second, but I think you asked me if I do my own like branding and things like yeah. that. And yeah, um, I do. I've done most all of it to date with the exception of a couple things where I've gotten some help. Oh, wow. um, but yeah, that's been an important part of it. I think, you know, I appreciate the whole package that includes the visual experience of the music, whether that's seeing a cover or seeing the live visuals or whatever. Um, and I think design made me appreciate all the different touch points and making sure that everything feels like it's a part of one um, experience. And then, you know, it just also provided me with a technical know-how to be able to implement it myself, which is great. I don't have to like convey my vision to someone else and hope right. what they reflect back is you know, captures it. So that's important to you from the perspective of expressing yourself as an artist, or is it like, are you just a control freak, or like, how does both. that? Both. Okay. Definitely both. <laughs> but I think the first is more important because, okay. you know, I remember growing up how important it was, you know, the unboxing experience of albums or the website, right. you know, or the promo material or the posters and the shirts. And I remember how important it was that it all felt like one identity, you know. And if I was really into this band, I wanted that to be reflected equally. And then I was really excited for what the next art was going to be. And if it was totally different, it kind of irked me. If it felt like an evolution, you know, that was really exciting. So, yeah, I think about that a lot. So you went from not realizing that you wanted to be a DJ to playing the biggest electronic music festival in the United States, which is Ultra coming up. That's got to feel pretty damn good. <laughs> it's, I mean... You have to you have to catch yourself and take a step back and think back a year or two ago for it to feel good. Because right now the weird thing is, even though like five years ago I literally could not have told you I'd be doing this or known what this was, you know, everything starts to feel kind of normal. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. One, it's good because, you know, I had really bad stage fright. I was never a performer. I never thought like, oh man, I don't know if I could do this in the first year or two because it was so nerve-wracking and now it feels normal and it's okay and I can get on stage and my heart rate is normal and I feel comfortable and I feel confident so I can put on a good show. But on the flip side, everything feels normal is bad because, you know, you make a comment like that and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm not that excited for Ultra. It's awesome. <laughs> I, know, I know rationally it's awesome, but I have to like sit here and be like, wow, a year or two ago, you know, this was, this was a benchmark. This was like a goal and I'm achieving that. So yeah, it's that balance of like appreciating where you are, but you know, do you find it hard to stop and smell the roses? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's still like a lot of stress that comes with just being self-employed, whether that's in this 
kind of um, work or something else and, you know, not having the utter confidence that in a year things are going to be really secure. So, yeah, you know, it's good to stop and to be happy and appreciate where you are. At the same time, I don't want to become complacent because I want to be able to keep doing this and I don't feel like I have such a solid foundation that I can just kick back and, you know, let things continue on their own. Well, I mean, so you brought up Ultra, and I'll, I'll take it to another extreme. I mean, what's it like to work with, uh, with Dimmock? I mean, how, how did how'd that come about? Um, we had just been lightly in touch with them and some other um, labels. And, you know, when the album started coming together, we, you know, when I say we, it's like me, my manager, um, you know, have been talking about pretty much up until this point, everything we've done is self-released. And, you know, we built a really good network through PR, PR people that can help us out, contacts with channels. You know, you really have to develop all these relationships yourself. Um, and so it was a curiosity of like, you know, what if we teamed up with a label? Like, what can they bring to the table? Because, you know, you're signing off ownership of your music. You're signing away a lot of money potentially too. And you're hoping that in return, you're going to get, you know, a bigger Rolodex, more connections, um, more people hearing the music that may not have heard it. So we had been in touch with Dimmock for a little while, kind of on each other's radar. And, um, you know, through the conversations with them, I think one culturally and just personality wise, it was a really good fit. There's like, you know, so kind and generous and enthusiastic. That's really important to hear that enthusiasm from a label. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was an experiment and I would say it, it was a really successful one. And I'm, you know, I'm really grateful for the work that they put in and it was, you know, it was worth trading off some of the ownership. Um, earlier in the interview, uh, we, we brought up the idea of you performing to make the, performing for the, uh, audience, the listener experience. Um, what is your, what do you want the audience to feel like when you're, when you're performing live, do you have kind of a goal or a vision or a, an aim there, or is it just, you know, whatever I can do to make them party? What's your approach there? Um, you know, I think that I want, I want the audience to walk away from a set and feel like, you know, if it's an hour long set that they got two hours of experience in it, you know? And I think okay. that, that is achieved for me, and I think a lot about contrast. Um, not just like bringing in some surprises into the set, but like, you know, integrating lots of kind of crescendos and then mellower moments and bringing it back up so that it doesn't feel like, you know, I'm just doing the classic trap TJ thing of, you know, 16 bar breaks and 16 bar drops and repeat it over and over again. And then maybe once in a while a long break right. for the vocal <laughs> or something, you know, I want it to feel like sonically they heard some things that were unfamiliar and provided a lot of, I guess, points of interest. So when they step away from it, they don't just remember that one mellow part or something. It, it feels like there was a bit more of a journey. And um, I think, you know, the music I write naturally caters towards that because I do like making a lot of more extended breakdowns or, you know, drops that aren't super high energy. And then I like making those too. So, yeah, I guess I like the idea that, you know, they walk away and they feel like, even if they heard the same amount of songs in someone else's one hour set, it feels like they traversed more landscapes. So it feels right. fuller. So then conversely, and you, you kind of hinted at this, but when you're playing your live shows, how much, how much do those live shows influence the music that you make at home or in the studio? Oh, a lot. I mean, 
actually I work a lot on the road and from hotels and airports and being able to go from playing a show to, you know, that same night or the next day, being able to hop into production software while you have that environment, you know, in mind and short term memory is really helpful when you're creating that kind of music. Um, you know, I also I DJ a lot of unreleased music that I'm still working on so I can hear how it sounds and, you know, make mental notes and go back and fix it up for the next night. So, yeah, I mean, until I was touring regularly, you know, I'd have to imagine hearing these songs in those environments a lot. And there was a lot more kind of guesswork about what it were. Um, but, you know, now that I'm touring so much, being able to actually just stick that stuff in your set and work on it while you're on the road is enormously inspiring in terms of making sure that it's, you know, especially that it's simple enough and it's catchy enough. And if you can get a crowd to start, you know, bouncing or dancing or whatever to a song they've never heard before in this kind of music, you know, that's a really big achievement. Yeah. It's not like house music, you know, where there is a consistent beat throughout the whole set or something. So if you're introducing new melodies, it's not a big deal because they've got such a foundation. Right. You know, with this kind of music that's, you know, a little bit, I don't know, more eclectic or rhythmically a little bit more varied, um, you know, if you can play a song they've never heard before that they can come along to, but they're into it, that's really validating. So, Zach, you've been very generous with your time. Do you have uh, a few more moments to uh, answer a couple more oh, questions? Yeah. Totally. Great, great. Um, yeah, actually, I, I want to congratulate you. This is your first uh, solo tour, yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about it, how, uh, how that came about. Well, it's not so solo. I mean, I have some awesome, awesome buddies coming out with me, so I got to credit, you know, Mern, Alexander Lewis, Lumberjack for coming along, helping move some of these tickets and fill these rooms. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's always like a timing question when you kind of set off on your own to do a headlining tour. Um, you don't want to do it too soon because, you know, it looks really bad if you can't sell the tickets. You don't want to sour any of those relationships with promoters. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just important to me. I'm not so eager to do a headline tour or wasn't that I, you know, was willing to risk any of that just to massage my ego or something like that. You know, I'm happy playing support roles. But, yeah, it was it felt like it was time with the album and with the arc to see, you know, where are we and, and what can we do in some of these markets if we were to, or if I was to really curate a show on my own. And it's been really awesome so far. The crowd energy and, you know, the fact that people are really coming out for this kind of music, you know, you're not trying to fit into the headliners demographic is huge. Um, so the shows have been phenomenal. And, you know, in some ways it's going to be hard to go back to play some of these support shows. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's been really good. So if I can interrupt my co-host here for just a moment, uh, you said something about uh, playing support roles versus playing the headliner slot. So when you get to the the place that you are now, career-wise, now I'm, I'm going to preface this question, we have kind of a um, healthy debate, I would say, going on amongst some of the listeners of our show who say that the, especially like the the main support role, you know, do you play... Do you keep it tamped down? Do you play to the crowd? Do you set up the headliner? Or do you take that as an opportunity to bring all that you've got and do you and expect that the promoter has done their job in booking the correct person? Um, So now that you're at this point, 
do you play drastically differently if you're in a support role versus your touring? Not not drastically differently. Okay. I mean, um, I think it's important that last point you made, you know, that it's on the promoter. Yeah. That I think that fits with some other logic I have, which is, you know, don't get known for doing a job you don't want to do later. And, you okay. know, yeah. like in a past career or something, I remember I was really good at video editing and really fast with it. But I didn't want people to know because the more I did it, the more I'd be asked to do it again. <laughs> so if you're going out there in a support capacity and you're playing, you know, a really mellow kind of housey vibey set, even though you're, you know, much more hype, high energy trap DJ, you're going to start to get known for that. And people are going to be like, oh, we should get this person out to do this thing again. And you're going to have to fill that expectation. So on the other hand, you know, you don't want to go out there and just you know, play R.L. Grimes' best hits right before the headliner Trap DJ comes on, you know, that's a balancing act. And you just have to say, like, there's competing interests here. There's the headliner's interest to not have something too high energy before they're set. There's your interest to play your music in the set that is representative of, you know, your best performance. There's the audience interest, which is to give them a good time. And then there's promoter's interest, which is to sell tickets. And you just have to decide who's most important and who am I going to most risk disappointing? Um, I've been in situations where I really held myself back a little bit because what was most important for me was making sure the headliners were really happy just on a human level because I appreciated them. And also at a career level, because, you know, I want to be brought back out. That being said, I'm not going to change so drastically that, um, you know, again, I'm being asked to do something that isn't really me. Now, the fortunate thing about being a producer and making your own music is no one's ever going to ask you not to play your own music. That's highly inappropriate. So if you make all bangers and they're all originals, I'd be shocked if a headliner said, hey, could you take these songs out of your set? Because you're like, well, you know, that's my music. So it's kind of on you. You brought me out. Yeah, what am I even doing here? <laughs> yeah, so when in doubt, if you want to play... You know, more high energy music as an opener. Well, just write those songs. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Tony. I I cut in there. Oh, no, no, um, I lost track. I was um, in in the DJ world. Who influences you? Um, I mean, can I reframe that and say in the producer world? Absolutely. Uh, there's a ton. I mean. People like Arl Grime, obviously. You know, big names like Rusty had been huge. That was some of the first music I heard that really like caught my attention. Hudson Mohawk. Um, you know, some of the early UK dubstep stuff. Um, yeah. And then, you know, a lot of my peers and people that are kind of at my level as well, people like Graves, Alexander Lewis, you know, Slumberjack, like these people that I'm on tour with, I'm bringing them because they're inspiring for me. And then, you know, so many people I can't even really name because they're just like super new that I just like cruising through SoundCloud and get super inspired by people that, you know, are just completely unknown so far. So, it, you know, it's tough. Um, and then, you know, conversely, I'd say, you know, most of my inspiration comes outside of electronic music, though. I'm kind of listening to electronic music to see how do I take this other sounds and make it electronic now? You know, how do I hear some, like, Bulgarian folk music and make that palatable to an EDM audience? And then I'll start digging through electronic music to pick up things, pick up the structure, pick up some ideas 
but the core of it came actually outside of EDM. So what do you like to listen to just on, on your quote-unquote days off? The, the way we've been framing this for interviews yeah. is what's on your iPod? I mean, it's, you know, I make EDM all day. And at the end of the day and on the weekends, I listen to stuff that is so different because it's I need to just kind of reset sure. and just cleanse my palate. So it's really minimal music, kind of modern classical music. Oh, okay. Um, it's a piano player like Nils Fromm, um, composers like Arvo Part. You know, some really chill stuff. But I'm still kind of listening to it to, like, steel chords and samples a little bit in the back of my head when I hear things. Um, but, yeah, it's really mellow stuff for the most part. <laughs> oh, that's You cool. know, a lot of, like, R&B and things like that. Yeah. So your most recent um, album, which was Fallout, correct? Mm-hmm. Came out in, what, October-ish? Something like that? Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, yeah so exactly. October. What's it like to construct a full album? Like, do you do you take that same approach? You know, you're you're really concerned about the general experience and the aesthetic and the overall package. So, I assume all of that goes into your considerations when making an album and how you order your tracks and, uh, and yep. all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, and you know, part of the the hardest part was kind of cutting music from it. That music I still love, oh. but didn't feel like it was part of the package music I still wanted to put out but didn't feel like it matched the overall experience um, but sometimes less is more I mean it, it started with a few songs that really captured the aesthetic I was going to and then it just kind of built out pretty organically from there it actually originally was intended to just be a little EP um, but it kept growing and um, yeah it was it was surprising to release so many songs at once for me because I've never done something like that. I was worried that the reception, it was like people's attention would be um, thinned out. But I found it was the opposite. People really engaged with the story of it. People really engaged with it as a collection. I feel like even more than putting out singles. So it's definitely something that I took away from feeling like, you know, this is this is in some ways a better way to deliver an overall experience. Singles are great. Remixes are great. I'm still doing all that stuff. But you know, a lot of my energy is now towards putting together these bigger experiences, which would be like an LP. Um, you know, and then after releasing it as a producer, there's like a little deflation moment, I guess, um, that I went through where I was really deterred from writing similar music and still kind of am because so much energy was put into this collection that, you know, is someone that always wants to be doing new things. And I think that's pretty common in, you know, the producer worlds put out 10 songs that sounds like you right and you feel like oh shit like i need to i need to let this go now and there's pain that comes with that but then i feel all this permission now to really branch out and the music i'm writing now is still me and feels in the same family but it's definitely the next generation of offspring for sure so when you're putting fallout together does it did you have an overall vision in mind for the album and then you just started making it and you kind of made it in order like that? Or was it like, I have 30 songs and I'm going to pick out the however, 10 or 12 or however many there are that well, fit the concept? I always have like 30 songs, but it started with a mood and an okay. idea. And, you know, I, I resist trying to articulate it too much in words or describe it because it's just a feeling like you. That's fair. You have a sense you know, you could make a collage of like clips from movies or other songs or aesthetics or photos to capture it, but it was just a mood. And without overthinking it, of course, I went through old demos and said, you know, is there anything I can pull out to build on? Because I always have, you know, a hundred unfinished songs, just sketches sitting around. But most of it was written 
you know, new for the album. It started out with, again, a few demos that I'd started that felt like a family and inhabited this kind of sonic mood that I was really into. And then it was just about building it out. Question, your tour. Um, tell us what we can expect on your tour. Is it is a, a fully produced tour, uh, production-wise, as far as visually, is it? No. Um, I mean, visually, yes. So, so there's a baby crying. Do you want me to try to walk somewhere? Uh, oh, we can hear you okay. We can hear you fine. Okay, cool. All right, yeah. good, good. As long as you guys can hear me. Um, it's a modest production. You know, okay. there's visual packages, but the emphasis was on small rooms uh -huh. um, that we could fill out and could keep that energy level and the crowd engagement really high. And, um, you know, these, so these aren't going to be spots where you can bring in huge production and things like that. Um, so there's that trade-off there, right? If you target larger venues, you can invest more in, you know, what you put on stage. Um, but unless you're filling those venues, you know, you've just put a bunch of investment into your stage production and the venue's, you know, a quarter, half full or something like that. And it's not going to feel the same. So the, for the focus here was small rooms. You know, I can spend time out in the crowd. I can come out afterwards and hang with people. People feel close to the music and the stage. And so I think that it's a really fun experience and it's really interactive. And that's how I wanted my first headline tour to be, because, you know, these are these are like core fans. These are people that have been with me for a while. I didn't have some huge singular cosign and suddenly there's like thousands of people showing up to my shows. Um, so it's important to respond to that, to give them something that I know they would appreciate and take away from. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about or plug before we let you get on your way? Uh, you know, just to tell people to keep an eye out for shows that, you know, especially this headline, the fallout tour, if it's coming to your city, because um, again, we're trying to do something unique and i think it's an opportunity to be really close to the music and to you know meet me and the other acts that are coming out and uh yeah if you want to support me that's the number one way and hope you'll come out to some shows and uh yeah thanks for talking with me appreciate this absolutely it's been a wonderful conversation and we appreciate you uh taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us <laughs> no problem no problem